Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Between 1940 and 1946, thousands of Jewish refugees from Poland lived and toiled in the harsh Soviet interior. They endured hard labor, bitter cold, and extreme deprivation. But out of reach of the Nazis, they escaped the fate of millions of their co-religionists in the Holocaust. In survival on the margins, Polish-Jewish refugees in the wartime Soviet Union, published by Harvard University Press in 2020, Eliana Adler provides the first comprehensive account in English of their experiences. Eliana Adler is Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Pennsylvania State University. I'm so glad her new book has brought her to our program. Welcome, Eliana. Thank you so much. So to get started, um, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book? Sure, yes. Um, People often assume that this must be my family story uh, because I wrote about it and because, in fact, many of the earlier scholars who wrote about aspects of this experience, this was their own life story. In fact, it's not my family story, and um, I fell into it somewhat accidentally. Um, I heard pieces here and there. I read literature here and there. I I didn't really put together that there was a whole big story to be told. And originally, my, my first book was about a history of education, and I thought that I was going to write just my first book was also um, in 19th century. I thought I was going to just do this little piece, like one article about underground educational institutions in Soviet Central Asia during the war. And then I would go back to the 19th century and back to my other work. But I became very, very interested in the topic. And I also realized that the context was missing. I couldn't write a single article about education because no one understood why there were Polish Jews in Central Asia in the middle of the Second World War. And no one had really written about how they got there. And so somehow my article became a book. Right. Well, we're all the beneficiaries of that uh, of that uh, um, journey of yours, um, and your your book does describe a somewhat complicated uh, uh, sequence of events. So, to help the listeners, uh, our, our listeners understand this, could you just describe briefly what was um, um, the you know the basic uh, journey that the Polish Jews that you um, describe went through? Uh, starting out in Poland and then ending up where they did in the Russian interior. Yes, I would be happy to. And as you say, it there are all sorts of complex aspects, but I'll try and give the 
the sort of initial story, which is that um, in 1939, the Soviets and the Nazis split Poland in half, and the largest Jewish community in Europe was um, suddenly uh, under two different occupation regimes. And it took a while for the border to be established and to really take root. And so there was a period of not just weeks, but months when it was possible to go across. And so people went in both directions, but Jews, more of them went east, that is into the Soviet occupation, then west into the German one. And those are the people who I study, people who made a decision to leave um, German-occupied Poland, to go to Soviet-occupied Poland. There they became refugees. And through complications that we might get back to, um, most of them ended up rejecting Soviet citizenship and therefore being deported in 1940 into the Soviet interior into what were termed special settlements and were essentially part of the greater sort of gulag administration, but were not, some some of them were in fact full-on labor camps, but many of them, all of them had labor as an aspect, but some of them were um, also um, communal farms, collective farms, that is, or um, isolated settlements where people had to work and stay in that same area. Um, they were told they were going to stay there for the rest of their lives. But then when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, a deal was worked out um, with the help of the British and via um, the, uh, the Polish government in exile in London to amnesty all Polish citizens, not particularly Jews, but all Polish citizens who were incarcerated in the USSR, which was a large number. Uh, So suddenly they were free, but they couldn't go home. Home was, had been taken over. Home was dangerous. And so they had to find someplace else to go. And most of them went south. They were cold. They were miserable. They were hungry. They thought there would be more food. They thought it would be safer in the Central Asian republics and in Kazakhstan. So they went there. They also went there because they thought they would uh, run into other Polish Jews there, maybe reconnect with their family, with their lansmen, people from the same area, the same town. Um, And they spent most of the Second World War struggling to survive in uh, what turned out to be uh, rather uh, certainly not certainly not as dangerous as their home regions, but in fact, quite overcrowded areas where there weren't enough resources, where um, epidemic diseases were everywhere, and where they were at the bottom of the period pyramid in terms of uh, supplies and resources. Uh, Nonetheless, most of them did survive the war. And uh, when it was over, somewhat surprisingly, Stalin decided that they could go back to Poland. So in 1946, these refugees, these long-term refugees, show up back in their home country where they're essentially refugees again. And some of them decide to stay there and to try and rebuild a new Poland. And the majority of them elect to leave, to become refugees again, and to join the flow of 
Holocaust survivors from Poland going to German DP camps, to Palestine, to all over the world. So it's a huge story. Right. Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful synopsis of this very complicated uh, set of events that you explore in your book. Um, so to get into some of that a little bit more, uh, approximately how many Jews fled German-occupied Poland to the Soviet-occupied territories? That's a question that a lot of people have tried to figure out. And the short answer is we'll, we will never know because <laughs> they were fleeing. <laughs> there was no border. No one was keeping track. Um, we, we simply will never get an exact number or even, a, even an approximate number uh, because also people were going back and forth. Nonetheless, of course, we have to have some numbers to work with. And it used to be that people said about 350,000. Lately, scholars, particularly because of some recently available Soviet sources, have downgraded that number and suggested that maybe it was just 100,000. My own belief, feeling, discovery, I mean, I don't have, I don't have proof, is that it's certainly true that the numbers who were deported were less than 100,000. But I don't think that that means that only 100,000 crossed the border. I think it was a much larger number than that, but that some of them did accept Soviet citizenship and that many of them stayed for only a short time and then went back, which is hard for us to imagine. What would it take for someone to decide, I like it better under the Nazis? But in fact, there was quite a lot of that. And we see it in the memoirs that people thought, when they fled, often they thought this war will be over soon. I'll separate from my family. I'll leave my wife and kids. I'll leave my elderly parents and just hide out for a little while in Soviet territory. But when they realized that it wasn't over, many of them actually went back to their families. Um, so for that reason, I believe that it's a larger number than we can quantify. But um, we're talking about one to 200,000 approximately. Right, right, and and I have to say this, um, that that piece of this puzzle, uh, the idea that the reality that there were Jews who had managed to 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 flee German-occupied Poland, and going into to Russian-occupied Poland, and then decided to go back, um, uh, and it, it reminds me of the the, the a similar. Uh, kind of historical reality that there were many Jews who came from Eastern Europe in the early uh, late 19th or early 20th century to the United States. And then because of the hardships that they faced in America, they actually went back to Eastern Europe only to end up in the clutches of, of Hitler and the Holocaust. And uh, to me, it, 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 it highlights the fact that what we all know, contemporaries, people post-Holocaust, all know about the terrible devastation of the Holocaust was, of course, unknown uh, to people in 1939 and, you know, who were making these life and death decisions. And that I think you do a phenomenal job when you're describing the uh, decision-making process at the time. You try to keep out the subsequent knowledge that 
uh, you know, many of the actors and certainly the readers today have about the Holocaust. Thank you. Yes. Uh, this um, project led me to think a lot about choice, the importance of choice. And just parenthetically, I mean, your point about going back to Europe, that is my family story. <laughs> uh, my, my family actually came to, went to Argentina and then didn't like it and went back to Poland. Um, all of these things are so hard to imagine and understand. And I mean, not only the question of going back, but also why not leave? The fact is, whatever the numbers are, the vast majority of Polish Jews under German occupation stayed there when the border was open to the Soviet Union. Um, they stayed there because human beings don't like change, because it's hard to leave, because you always think you're going to be more safe with your home, your belongings, your community, your safety net. So I, I did spend a lot of time thinking about choice, and I, I tried to really elevate um, these discussions of choice and to take them seriously. Uh, as you say, in retrospect, it's easy to say that certain decisions were wrong or right. Um, but at the time, people didn't know what was going to happen. They had no way of imagining. Even the perpetrators didn't know what was going to happen. It was still unfolding. And people made life and death choices. And in retrospect, they also understood that. So there's the way in which they describe those moments uh, in their memoirs and in their oral testimonies is often, you know, almost cinematic, like this huge moment with the music and the, the background. But in reality, it was, these were often momentary decisions. Just go, I'll catch up with you later. Kind of decisions. Um, take your brother and go. And, um, and that of course, leads to a lot of heartache and pain afterward. Sure. And speaking of um, the, this decision-making process, do we have a sense of the demographics of those who left? Are they distinct from, you know, uh, the, the majority of the people who stayed, for instance? Yeah. Um, There's kind of shorthand that some scholars have have used previously was that it tended to be um, younger peoples and particularly younger men who left and often left-leaning um, people politically who maybe thought the Soviet Union, I've always kind of had an affinity there. I'm going to give it a try. Not necessarily full-on communists, but um, uh, people who had some attraction to socialism, for example, or just to progressive ideas. And certainly um, those demographics are represented and perhaps somewhat slightly overrepresented. But what I found to be very important in looking at, um, particularly in looking at, say, oral testimonies, because people who write memoirs are often, not always, but are often somebody important, somebody who's achieved something, someone who has something to say, or often are writers. But people who record oral testimonies are just anyone. And what I saw was that, yeah, sure, it was younger men often, but it was also entire families. It was also Orthodox families who knew that they weren't going to be welcomed and that their lifestyles weren't going to be welcomed in the Soviet Union. 
It was also Bundes who knew that they were going to be arrested. Um, that is members of the of this particular um, socialist Jewish party that had been disbanded and made illegal long before in the Soviet Union. Um, so it was everyone. It was all sorts of Polish Jews for all sorts of reasons, um, but certainly skewing younger. Right. And um, how were these Jews, these refugees, as you sometimes call them in, in your book, how were they received by the uh, Soviet government once they had entered Soviet territory? So it would appear that there wasn't a plan. This wasn't sort of a rescue plan, but that nonetheless, the Soviet government did not really clamp down on border crossing, even when they had a border. That is, they were allowed refugees to filter through much until the end of 1939. So for several months, um, large numbers of refugees from Poland were not exactly being welcomed, but sort of guards were kind of looking the other way. Um, There's some reason to believe that the Soviet government believed that um, they would just go home, the borders would settle. Maybe they were people who were divided families, just will settle down and then everyone will end up where they should be. Um, or just that the Soviets had so much going on, having incorporated these vast new territories and all these people, and they were so busy um, bringing in all of their policies and people and Sovietizing these areas, that the relatively small number of refugees was just a minor issue. And so really, it wasn't for some months that the Soviet authorities even began to do anything about the refugees, um, which on the one hand was good because it allowed them to come. On the other hand, meant that there weren't really social services being offered to them because all of the organizations of Jewish life, and not just of Jewish life, also of Polish Catholic life, of every, you know, the, the Soviet Union disbanded all organizations that weren't Soviet ones. But that meant also that the Jewish community itself um was sort of falling apart and unable to help these people just at their time of greatest need. And they were homeless and they were hungry and they were stateless. So um, there's sort of the, the pros and cons of this kind of lack of attention to them. But eventually, once the Soviets really got busy and put in place, they officially incorporated these territories, made them new republics of the USSR. They introduced all of their economic, educational, social, cultural, and other Soviet policies. Then they did begin to look at the refugees and decide that something needed to be done. And eventually the decision was made to give them sort of an ultimatum, but a a kind of a hidden one that they didn't realize was an ultimatum, which was to offer them Soviet citizenship with a slight um, change to normal Soviet citizenship. That that is, they couldn't live right near the border, but essentially to generously, from the perspective of the Soviet Union, give these refugees, these nobodies, these people they didn't even know and who they had some concern were were heavily involved in um, cross-border illegal trade, but nonetheless to generously offer them citizenship and Um, Or the other option was to offer them a return to German-occupied Poland. In fact, 
Um, that wasn't possible. The Germans were not accepting more Jews, not surprisingly. Um, so it was a false offer. And most of these Polish Jewish refugees chose, again, hard for us to make sense of, said, I'm going to go back home at this point. It's just too difficult to be a refugee. So they signed up for repatriation. Um, but in fact, what the Soviet decision had been, it would appear to be all along, uh, the Soviets, I, I think they did expect more of them to um, take their offer up of Soviet citizenship. Uh, but those who didn't, which turned out to be most of them, were uh, then they were kind of left alone for a few months. And then in June of 1940, they were all picked up. Over the course of a couple nights, um, the NKVD came in with local people helping them as translators and to find all of these refugees and swept them up and deported them. Right. And, um, and just to clarify, those um, Jews who accepted um, those Polish Jews who accepted Soviet citizenship, what happened to them? Were they also picked up in this sweep? Right. Um, so on the whole, they were not. And, and this, all these categories do become confusing. And I, this is something I had to deal with in writing the book also. But on the whole, those Polish Jews who accepted Soviet citizenship just became like all of the other Polish Jews who had been automatically granted Soviet citizenship because they lived previously in those territories. That is, there was there over a million Polish Jews just happened to be living there, and then they became Soviet citizens because the borders changed. And the former refugees sort of joined that population. Of that population, some were deported for other reasons. That is, the Soviets were involved in deportation. That was something that they did. It was a major part of their regime. So Polish citizens, uh, Jewish, Catholic, and other, um, were swept up in other deportations of, for example, uh, the military, anyone who had served in the military, uh, or particularly officers, um, were often taken away and deported. And there were other groups also whom the Soviets were worried would be dangerous. And so they took them away. And so some of those who accepted citizenship might have fallen into those categories. But on the whole, they stayed in those territories. And that meant that when the Germans invaded in 1941, roughly a year later, uh, that population was decimated, was murdered almost immediately. Those were the, the very first uh, mass murders of the Holocaust took place in those territories. So this brings us to your description of Jewish luck uh, in the context of, uh, of the story you're telling. So what, what is the ironic meaning of Jewish luck and how does it fit into uh, exactly this um, this part of your of your narrative. So um, the, the Polish Jewish refugees who were deported um, into the Soviet interior, they were taken to um, the far north, Arhangelsk. They were taken to northern Kazakhstan, to the Urals, and some were taken to Siberia. But all of them refer to that 
everything is Siberia. If you're deported in the Soviet Union, it must be Siberia. And at that moment, that was the worst thing in the world. Um, they were suffering terribly. They did not have uh, warm enough clothing. They didn't have enough food. Their teeth started falling out. They started getting night blindness. They were um, cutting down trees in forests. These were, you know, haberdashers. They didn't know how to cut down trees. They didn't have the training. Uh, they were losing limbs. They were suffering greatly. And not only did they think it was the end of the world for them, but so did all their compatriots. So in these Soviet labor camps, Polish Jews were receiving packages from the ghettos, from their relatives whom they'd left behind, were receiving letters and packages of food, of long underwear, trying to help them get through. So it, this is the sort of central paradox of the book and the, the joke about <laughs> Jewish luck um, in that that turned out to be their salvation. They were slowly dying, actually, in these labor camps, but everyone they left behind died a terrible and much quicker death. And it turned out that Soviet deportation saved them. And so again, in retrospect, they all have to make some sense of that and they all have to kind of describe that. And um, one way is through this sort of black humor. Right. Um, uh, so uh, what were the conditions in the, the, the settlements, the camps that these refugees ended up in in Central Asia? And uh, what was the camp life like uh, where they ended up? So there's different categories of settlements, but um, the majority of the Polish Jewish refugees were deported with their entire families or with whatever group they were with to sort of family camps. And these were, these tended to be, um, again, generalizing here, um, remote settlements that had been sort of emptied out. So they were dropped off to a couple of barracks someplace in the taiga um, in, um, with nothing, really, just trees all around them and told that if they left, they would be eaten by wolves. They didn't need fences around these camps because there was no place to go. They were lost. It wasn't safe. They were, they were taken great distances. Um, they encountered weather there beyond their imagination, um, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 below, um, working outside. Uh, a few lucky people would get positions maybe in the cafeteria or as bookkeepers, but most of them um, were quite unprepared for physical labor at all but certainly no one is prepared for physical labor in these kind of conditions, nor were they given um, safety equipment, nor were they given uh, even um, the basics of the kind of padded clothing that the Soviets um, usually wore in those conditions. Sometimes they could buy them at very high prices, but often they just weren't available. And um, the food rations were also very small and were dependent upon work. So all of these conditions, I should say, were entirely typical of the Soviet gulag. These were not anti-Jewish. They were not anti-Polish measures. 
there were millions, literally millions of Soviet citizens who lived like this for years and who died like this in these camps. Um, the, for the Polish Jews, um, just having come from Poland, they weren't ready for those conditions in all sorts of ways, culturally. They didn't know how the Soviet Union worked. And that meant, for example, that they thought that they should be allowed to observe their holidays. Okay, we'll work for you, but not on Saturdays. Certainly, you don't expect us to do that. Okay, maybe Saturdays you're going to make us work, but not on Rosh Hashanah, not on these major Jewish holidays. And so there are all sorts of clashes ensue where um, the Polish Jews just don't understand that the Soviet regime doesn't recognize religious holidays, that that's not really a possibility. Sometimes they got away with it because local commanders looked the other way. Sometimes there were they were punished for it. Sometimes there were strikes that took place in these very far off locations where Jews refused to work, say on Yom Kippur. Um, but over time, they got more used to the conditions. They began to understand what was expected of them. They, um, many of them were incapable of the work and um, died of the conditions. They weren't getting enough vitamins. Um, some people were sick to begin with and not that strong, particularly children and the elderly died in higher numbers uh, in those places. They're, they were buried there. Um, again, there were um, sometimes fights, sometimes uh, more harmonious conclusions where people were allowed to bury their dead according to their religious convictions and traditions. Sometimes they were not. Often they weren't able to get medical help. Um, so fairly dire conditions on the whole, um, with some being worse, that is, some actually taken to Soviet labor camps in the Gulag, where they were integrated with Soviet citizens, and in that case, um, the men being taken away, separated from their families, um, in much more harsh conditions, work-wise and climate-wise, um, and some a little bit better, so to speak, in that they were in more populated areas, where at least they could trade their belongings to try and get a little more food. Right. And um, uh, given all of the the conditions and the system that you were just describing, did the refugees manage to have any cultural or religious activities in, uh, in these settlements? So overall, cultural life was very limited. In some of these settlements, there was um, some amount of time, well, all of them had some indoctrination going on um, about what it is to be a Soviet citizen and a kind of a, a re-education program. And sometimes that included cultural activities. One Sunday a month, you can we'll bring in a Soviet film that shows you what a great country this is. Or we'll bring in a singer, again, that of some native group within the Soviet Union, and you'll be exposed to that culture. Um, so some of them had a little bit of culture brought in. And within some of the camps, the refugees were able to build in um, some cultural activities of their own, sometimes in a clandestine manner, just in their barracks at night, 
maybe saying some prayers together, maybe singing some songs together, um, and sometimes a little bit more openly uh, in some in some places. Right. And what were the relations between the Polish Jewish refugees and the Soviet citizens um, and other non-Jewish Polish uh, refugees in these uh, uh, labor camps? Sure. Yes. So there are a lot of different populations um, who were deported or who lived in these areas. And so there's all sorts of interesting interactions going on in the labor camps overall. And again, this is a huge generalization, but most of the Polish Jews describe getting on well with other Polish deportees. That is Polish Catholic deportees and Jewish deportees worked together. Oftentimes, some of the Polish Catholics had more experience, for example, with outdoor labor, with working in forestry, and were able to teach the Jews how to saw down a tree, um, or were able to cover for one another. Okay, you have a holiday today, we'll work harder, and you can run off and do what you need to do. Uh, We have a holiday next week. Uh, So that sort of thing. There's a certain amount of cooperation. Um, Overall, relations with um, Soviet citizens at this point are described pretty negatively. That is mostly they're relating to the guards in the camp who it's their job to make it a harsh experience. And on top of that, many of them don't like Poles very much and or don't like Jews very much. And so they face a certain amount of uh, hatred and sometimes discrimination in the camps. Um, not always as Jews, though, often as as Polish citizens who are considered to be bourgeois and spoiled and why are you complaining and that sort of thing. Um, so that that's uh, sort of the general picture. Right. And did these um, uh, Polish Jewish refugees receive uh, any charity from abroad to help them get through the very difficult circumstances that they were living in? So during this period, while they were in these camps, they were receiving um, some not there, there was there were no charitable organizations that could get to them. They were just receiving a little bit of help from other Polish Jews in the Soviet Union, um, that is, who hadn't been deported and were still in the uh, formerly Polish territories, or from uh, Polish Jews in Nazi territory, because of course the Soviets and the Nazis were cooperation were um, working together at this point. That would change once, of course, uh, the Soviet Union was invaded. Uh, Later on, they would begin to receive help from international organizations. But at this point, the Soviet Union was still quite closed and not working with or allowing in any of that. Right. And then once... um... Once uh, Germany invaded Russia and then Russia and Germany were officially at war with each other and Russia uh, joined the alliance against the against Hitler, against Germany, um, w- along with uh, England and America, um, um, di- 
how did the situation in terms of getting relief or support from um, uh, charitable organizations from abroad impact the lives of the Polish uh, Jewish refugees in the, um, uh, the Russian interior? So um, the, the Soviet Union was in great need in the early really the whole, for sure, the first year of when the war started for them, that is from 1941, uh, the Germans were advancing remarkably quickly, more quickly than they had even thought was possible. And God knows they were very uh, confident. Um, and the Soviets were losing on every front in every possible way. They were losing territory, they were losing people, there were millions of their uh, soldiers being taken prisoner. Um, they needed all the help they can get. And so Stalin and his government had to open up in certain ways that they had not been willing to do really in decades. That is, right after the revolution, there was still more sort of kind of traffic with the rest of the world, but that had closed down. And so it's at this point that slowly, cautiously, and in a number of different avenues, the Soviet Union begins to allow foreign aid, um, and some communication with foreign powers uh, to its citizens. And that takes a number of different forms that reach this particular population. The first of those was that the Polish government in exile, in addition to negotiating to have their citizens freed from all of the camps and special settlements, also negotiated to be allowed to form a military um, uh, of Polish military uh, to fight with the allies and to be allowed to bring in material aid for their citizens. Now, having granted that didn't mean that the Soviets were just going to let them, you know, drive in and hand out goods. Uh, there was actually a lot of very difficult, rather terrible ongoing negotiations um, for everything, for everything that was granted. But bit by bit, uh, the Polish government in exile, which itself didn't have any source of funding because it was in exile, had to rely on other parties, chiefly on uh, Great Britain and the United States, who were both supporting it financially, but also on a lot of expatriate groups, um, among them some Polish ones, and a lot of Jewish ones gave generously to the Polish government in exile, um, Jewish groups in the United States and Great Britain and in Palestine, and all of these goods were collected in Iran and brought in by truck and by boat to kind of uh, depots. They, the Poles weren't allowed to bring in their own people. They were allowed to kind of deputize Polish citizens who were already in the Soviet Union to hand out um, these goods. And, and so it was a, a difficult, um, lengthy fraught process and became more fraught because almost immediately to the opening of um, these uh, kind of depots within um, Central Asia, the territory where most Polish citizens were at this point, there were complaints of anti-Semitism. So this relatively harmonious period between Polish and Catholic, that, that is between Poles who were Jewish and Catholic, in the labor camps begins to fall apart almost immediately. 
and Jews begin to complain to other Jews outside the Soviet Union and to um, governments who were involved, like um, the American and the British government, that the Polish delegates were not, in fact, giving out money or goods to Polish Jews, but they were only giving it to Catholics. Um, so, um, nonetheless, there, there were those complaints, and undoubtedly there were some anti-Semites who weren't giving out, but there were some Jews who worked in those same offices, delegatura, um, and there were certainly Jews who described getting goods. Getting a coat um, was a big deal. It didn't save people. It, they weren't, there wasn't enough to go around. Even, even if, with or without any discrimination, no one was going to survive because they got one, you know, bag with a few bags of tea and a little bit of coffee and some cigarettes in it. Um, it helped, and it helped a lot emotionally getting those goods, being knowing that someone in the world knew that you were alone and suffering, but it didn't really feed people. It didn't really keep them warm. Right. Um, so that was the first group. And then later, when things got bad, uh, there were the, the Poles and the Soviets um, couldn't work together anymore. Um, some um, Jewish groups were able to begin to send in independently goods to help um, the Polish Jews who were in the Soviet Union. Right, right. I see. To shift our focus a little bit, um, uh, uh, as you, as the title of your book indicates, the 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 population that we're talking about are really on the margins, in some sense, of the you know kind of uh, traditional narrative of the Holocaust and the you know the Jewish experience uh, or, uh, during World War Two. I'm I'm curious uh, to what extent or, or, or when did the Polish refugees find out about the Holocaust that was going on back in their country of origin? Yes, so um, quite right. They're on the margins, sort of in every sense. They're on the margins in terms of just geographically, um, but also in how we tell the story, which is. The reason that I chose that for the title. Um, so news about the Holocaust began to filter in through a number of routes already beginning in 1943. And um, one of the ways that they found out was because quite a few of them were either mobilized or volunteered to fight in the Red Army so then there were Polish Jews who were sending letters back to their families or friends uh, in Soviet territory describing what they were seeing. And of course, the Red Army was liberating territories where all of the Jews had been murdered already beginning in 1943. So they were among the first witnesses to the destruction of the Holocaust. But of course, getting a letter that Berdichev in Ukraine doesn't have Jews anymore doesn't mean that these people in Bukhara, in Uzbekistan, understood that the same was true of Warsaw. So they were finding out about the Holocaust in a piecemeal way and um, had no reason really to understand, to believe 
how could anyone believe that everything and everyone was gone? So they knew and yet they didn't know about the Holocaust. And, and most of them describe only really understanding once they went home. It was only when they saw their town. Even when they understood, they began to get letters eventually as more territory was liberated from the places that they had lived. And they learned from a cousin that their mother had been murdered. But still, they didn't understand that that cousin was the only one of their family. And, and so it, it was an evolving um, comprehension. Right. And you describe how after... Uh... The, at the end of the of 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 the of the war, um, most, if not all, of the Polish uh, refugees left Central Asia and uh, made their way uh, initially back to 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 Poland, and ended up in DP camps and camps for displaced persons. Um, and uh, uh, the and and when they were there, they were joined by other. Uh, displaced persons who were um, quote-unquote Holocaust survivors, people who had lived and remained in, um, you know, in, in, in Eastern Europe during the years of the Holocaust. Um, what were the relationships between um, the Polish Jewish refugees who had gone to Central Asia and then returned and the other Holocaust survivors that were in these DP camps in Europe? After the war, all of the Polish Jewish survivors, um, and that is slightly less than 10% in all of this, what had been this tremendous, large and important Jewish community, um, they basically merged. That is, those who survived in camps, those who were in hiding, those who were in the partisans, and those who survived in the Soviet interior came together because they were all that was left of this remarkable civilization that had been built over centuries. Um, and they needed one another to form a minion, a uh, prayer quorum, to um, write in Yiddish and read in Yiddish what was for many of them their native tongue. Um, to remember what life was like before. And so to a great degree, they all of the survivors, um, whatever we call them, refugees, survivors, DPs, became in many ways indistinguishable. They married each other. They helped one another find ways to get to whatever countries they were going to. Um, that doesn't mean that there weren't some divisions between different groups. And certainly um, there would emerge already at this point, right after the war and continuing up to the present, different sort of what one would have been called kind of hierarchies of survival. Um, the sense of, say, ghetto fighters or partisans being the ones who were the heroes, the ones who deserve to be um, remembered and uh, glorified, whereas other forms of survival are somehow lesser. Uh, so that doesn't mean that that didn't exist, but that um, really, who else were they going to talk to? They were all that was left. And so they, they came together into one community. Right. And um, in what ways um, 
does the story of the Polish Jewish refugees that you describe challenge the orthodoxies uh, surrounding the second the history of the Second World War and the Cold War? Yeah, this was really important to me to try and I wanted to tell the story just for people to know more about this route of survival. But I also wanted to think about where it fits and to sort of make an effort to help other scholars integrate it more effectively. This is a this is the majority of Polish Jewish survivors. So their story should matter. And I I therefore did a lot of thinking about where it fits. And um, to my mind, it, it challenges kind of three different settled histories. Um, one is the Holocaust. Um, the other is the kind of Polish story of the Second World War, um, and particularly um, the, the story of the deportation of Polish citizens and, and what that meant. Um, and the third one is um, the Soviet story of the Second World War. So in each of these three areas, I think that this group sort of causes us to see things a little differently. But overall, without getting into the weeds too much, I can say that um, it also challenges sort of national histories because you can't actually really write just a history of the war in the Soviet Union or just in Poland. Because in fact, or the Holocaust just in Poland or in the Soviet Union, because people move and sometimes they move a lot and sometimes they move multiple times. And so I think that learning about this particular group of refugees challenges all of us to think about refugees then, all the different refugees from the war and where they went and how they affected the populations they interacted with. And also, of course, to think of the ongoing problems of refugees. Right. And um, to go back to to one um, controversy that you mentioned earlier on in your book, uh, you talk about the, that uh, that more recently, apparently, there's a controversy in Poland over the supposed uh, embrace by Jewish Poles of the Soviet authorities in the Soviet-controlled parts of Poland during uh, the beginning of 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 World War II, and that this has become a very controversial issue. Could you describe a little bit about, uh, you know, what exactly is this controversy about? Yes, I can try to do so. Um, And you're right, it's a sensitive issue. Um, But essentially, um, once the, it was fairly clear in 1939, in the summer of 1939, that the Germans were going to invade Poland. They were threatening. They were making it very clear. This, they had first taken, they'd taken Austria, they'd taken parts of the Czech Republic, parts of Czechoslovakia, and now they were making, uh, murmuring about Poland, yelling about Poland in many cases. So all Poles knew that they were soon going to have to fight the Germans. Um, For Jewish Poles, this was particularly a concern because they were learning about what was happening to Jews in Germany and in the other areas that Germany had expanded into. Um, So while for all Poles, um, the invasion of their country was a terrible thing, um, for Jews, it ended up 
that many Jews felt a sense of relief when it turned out that the Soviets took over their home areas rather than the Nazis. Of course, they weren't cheering the end of independent Poland, but many of them did cheer, or some at least did, um, cheer the arrival of the Red Army. In some cases, they believed um, that the Red Army had come to fight with them against the Germans. That is, the Germans invaded on September 1st, 1939. The Soviets didn't invade till September 17th. So to some Poles, it looked like, ah, the Soviets have come to protect us. Instead, of course, they came to split Poland in half. But even, even those who understood exactly what the Soviets were doing, for Jews, that was, to use the title of another book about this topic, The Lesser of Two Evils. And um, for some Polish citizens, non-Jewish Polish citizens then and now, that moment is viewed as sort of a break. That is, Jews chose the wrong side. They, they made the wrong decision. Um, and therefore, we can't, they can't really be trusted. Now, what is very clear about that kind of statement is, first of all, that it um, hugely overgeneralizes. Not all Jews were in the streets cheering the Soviets, and plenty of non-Jews were there also. So it's, and it draws on older anti-Semitic tropes about Jews not being trustworthy, about Jews working for the other side. Also, to a great degree, it's clear that some of it is a sort of retrospective um, view because after the war, when the Soviets kept control over Poland, that is, they allowed Poland to be a country again with different borders, um, but it was under sort of the Soviet umbrella, um, there were some Jews, some Polish Jews in that administration and, uh, and plenty of non-Jews. The majority of people who served in the Polish government were non-Jews. But again, because of traditions of anti-Semitism, those kind of two periods get um, reflected in one another. So, oh, the Jews, they only wanted to bring the Soviets here, and now they've taken over our country. So they must have, in 1939, have had this plan already. And so this idea of what's called in Polish the Zydokomuna, this Jewish communist um, amalgam um, gets reflected backward onto an earlier time, and in many cases without the contextual understanding of why, for Jews, the Soviets were clearly better than the Germans. That there's no question that to any Jew that was a better option. Um, so that continues to be. Um, written about even up to the present um, in problematic ways. And I, I tried and other people have tried before me to um, kind of be fair in my assessment and in writing about that, but it, it is um, one of the touchier subjects. Right. And um, it's interesting because your, your book really uh, forces the reader to think about the 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 treatment of Jews as well as other um, people of other 
uh, you know, different groups, uh, their treatment at the hands of, of Hitler versus Stalin. Like that's like almost unavoidable when you read the book and you, you, you know, uh, uh, will you will you lay this all out? So I'm curious how um, you, you know what you found relates to another book um, uh, 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 on the same topic by Timothy Snyder uh, called Bloodlands, which also tried to look at the the treatment of various peoples under uh, um, under the Nazis versus under the Soviet regime. How does how, how does how does your uh, uh, research um, relate to uh, Snyder's findings? Yeah, that's a, a great question, also a big one. I, I would say Snyder is certainly the most kind of visible, uh, audible voice, but this is kind of a, a trend in scholarship. He, he's one of many, or at least a handful, of people who are moving in this direction um, of more looking at the war and totalitarianism. I mean, obviously, Hannah Arendt did that also. Um, but going back to that and and looking at how both of these regimes um, sort of come out of some of the same roots and reflect each other in certain ways. And um, and Timothy Snyder tries to do that in in very um, in a kind of bold and big way. I think that what I'm doing is um, much more focused and narrow. But it does have larger implications, and it, it certainly does reflect the ways that there was communication and interaction between Hitler and Stalin, and what that meant for human beings, and um, also the. It, I think we get really on a concrete level a sense of what the border changes meant, what the fronts meant, because where the Germans got to determined who survived and who didn't. And had they gotten further, this whole story that I'm telling would be a very different story. It would be one of first oppression under Stalin and then under Hitler. And there are some people for whom that did happen, that the Germans actually did catch up with them, even though they were part of this group that was further away. Um, so I, I think it's um, a more narrow slice, but that it does reflect on some of these larger questions, um, um, whereas the kind of broader approach of Snyder and others at times risks um, losing specificity. And um, th there's a certain kind of broad strokes that make different experiences um, more similar than they actually were. Right, right. Well, obviously, there's so much more to talk about, but we're going to have to leave it there uh, uh, for today. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.